I want to encourage you guys to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And today we wrap up our Christmas sermon series. And today we have the joy and pleasure of having our very own Roger to come up and read the text. So please welcome him. day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that it would transform us and change us and make us more like you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to keep open your Bibles there, your smartphones to that text as we go through it together this morning. One of the themes that has stood out very clearly from our text over this last month is that there is this need for us to be witnesses. Amen? And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm pretty pumped and excited because we're jumping into the book of Acts starting in January. And the whole theme of the book is us being witnesses of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we see John the Baptist doing here as he himself beholds Jesus for himself with his own eyes. See, John wants his audience to know that he wasn't just a witness in the sense that he had something to say. How many of you know that today in our world, everybody has something to say? <laughs> just jump on social media, go on to Twitter, go on to TikTok. Everyone has something to say, right? And we care more or less about what people have to say, right? depending on what we think is important or not. But just because you have something to say, it doesn't mean that you've experienced it yourself. How many of you guys know the difference? Right? You can give your opinion about a movie, but you'll have a very different opinion if you go and watch that movie. Right? Oh, critics say, or, you know, Andrew went to go watch Avatar, but he didn't really like it because he's not crazy about blue people. You know, but if I love blue people and I go watch it, I'm probably going to have a different opinion. But for me to say, well, it's not a good movie, would that be a fair assessment? No. Why? Because I myself haven't watched the movie. How many of you guys know some of those people who say they don't like food, but they've never tried it? Of course you don't like it. You've never tried it. So in our home, we have a rule. You can't say you don't like it until you... Because you're only going to know if you like it or not until you. There's a difference. And this is what John the Baptist is going to insist with us this morning. Telling us three times that he saw Jesus. He didn't just testify. He didn't just say that he knew that the Christ was going to come. That a Savior would come to save the people of Israel and the whole world. 
It wasn't just a message that he had, but his message became even stronger and more forceful when he discovered who the one that was going to save was going to be. Does that make sense? Look, I was going to share this at the end, but I'm going to share this at the beginning. I'm going to share these pictures, okay? So if you could just show these, these pictures. Okay, the first one. This is the peak of the Samaria Gorge. Okay, this is in Crete, Greece. That is White Mountain in the behind. And this is the top. Okay, this is what it looks like. This is the largest gorge in Samaria. Okay, it's 16 kilometers of hiking from the peak all the way down. It's one thing to look at that and say, wow, that is so beautiful, the peak. Let's go back to the first pick, the peak. That is so beautiful. It's wonderful. It is great. It's majestic. It's a completely different thing to actually be there and to do the hike and to know how challenging it is because no one can deny the person who has been there and who has had to trek through the 16 kilometers itself, right? So that, that first picture with the sign, this one I found on the internet, okay? The next picture I took because I was there. Next picture, that's me right there on the left. I don't know if you can notice because the lights, that's me there on the left. I'm having breakfast, okay? Because you start this hike at 7 o'clock in the morning, okay? You have to be up at 5, 5.30. You take the bus, and the, it brings you to the peak, okay? And then you begin to go down that terrain there on the left. It's rocky. It's mountainous. There's jagged edges. You have to keep your eyes where your feet are because if you don't guess what's going to happen you're going to trip and you're going to hurt yourself they tell you when you start this hike that if you don't make it there is no way for you to get out of it a donkey won't come pick you up there'll be no way you have to get to the end yourself you have to sign a waiver and then you have people who show up past christina they show up in high heels and you're like oh my goodness I did my research before we went, and we said, I said, honey, make sure you bring comfortable shoes because there have been people who have gotten stuck here. This is us. You want to see the one with the canyon? See, they're there on the left. That's the gorge. You're literally trekking through the mountains, down and then through the gorge, the opening all the way through, and this is what you have waiting for you at the end. Look, I don't know if you can tell. Look at the color of the sand. It's pitch, pitch black. You start at 7 in the morning, and you end at around 2 in the morning, in the afternoon. <laughs> Took days. It was incredible. When I, we were there, we were hiking down. There was a runner who ran down. And when we were getting to the end, guess what the runner was doing? Running back up. Incredible. This is one of the best experiences of my life. 
You can ask Christina how it was for her later. <laughs> it's tough, though. No one can tell me that I don't know what it's like to hike through the Samaria Gorge. No one can tell me that I don't know where the largest gorge in Europe is. It's on the island of Crete in Greece. I've been there. I have seen it for myself, and I have done it myself. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? It's undeniable. It won't matter what other people have to say. Why? Because I was there, and no one can tell me otherwise. And this is John's point. Because we see clearly in three of these verses that John is going to say, I saw, I saw, I have seen. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about how John bore witness like uh, someone in a courtroom testifying? This is what John is saying. I was there. This is what I observed, and this is what I saw, and this is what it was like for me. He's giving a first-hand account, not of what people have told him, what he's heard. How many of you guys know that sometimes we hear things and what we hear isn't the truth? John is not talking about something that he heard somebody say. He is talking about what he has seen for himself. And he is sharing it in a very forceful way. Because to him, it has become undeniable now who the Christ is. He has been proclaiming the Christ and that he would come. But now he knows who he is. And so we jump into our first point starting in verse 29 and 30. Witnessing the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is continuing his testimony of Jesus. And if you remember from last week, he responded to the delegation that was coming from Jerusalem. And they wanted to know who John the Baptist was. And he said very clearly that he was not the Christ. He wasn't the one who was going to come to rescue and save Israel. And he said, listen, I'm not even Elijah or the prophet. I am simply a voice that is crying out in the wilderness. I'm preparing people to encounter the Savior. Now it's the next day. And John the Baptist is at the River Jordan preaching and baptizing people. And who does he see approaching? Look at the text, not at me. Who? In verse 29. Jesus. Jesus has come out into the wilderness to where John is. And John makes a very bold declaration when he sees Jesus. He says to the crowds of people who have been hearing him preach and who he has baptized. And he says, behold, look, who is it? It is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is affirming to everyone there, pointing to Jesus and saying, Him, that one right there. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The title Lamb of God is not found anywhere else in all of the Bible. This title is exclusively given to Jesus by John the Baptist himself. 
what does John do? He is grabbing these themes from the Old Testament that spoke of lambs and brings them together to show that Jesus is this lamb that now God has provided. So here are some of the ideas from the Old Testament that John now is saying has found its purpose and meaning in the person of Jesus. In Genesis chapter 22, God tests Abraham. Remember, God had promised Abraham that from his descendants would come a whole nation. And remember, Sarai, what can she do? She cannot have children. They're both in their old age. And then God finally gives them a son, Isaac. And then God tests Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Abraham gathers some wood. And he puts the wood on the back of his son. And his son is carrying the wood on his back, and they're going up the mountain to the place of sacrifice. And Isaac turns to his father and says, Dad, where is the sacrifice animal? Where is the lamb? And Abraham says in Genesis 22, 8 this. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went so they went both of them together. When they reached the place of sacrifice, Abraham binds Isaac, his son, lays them on the altar, raises his hand, and is about to kill his son and sacrifice him to God. When God intervenes and says, Abraham, now I know that there is not anything that you will do because you do trust God. And he says, look, and as Abraham looks in the thistle bushes, there is a ram to sacrifice. God does provide. Abraham unties his son Isaac. They go get the ram. They bring it and they slaughter it as a burnt offering. God provided a substitute to sacrifice in the place of Isaac, Abraham's son. In Exodus 12, as God prepares his people to leave Egypt, he brings his final plague on the people of that nation. What is the last plague that God will bring upon the Egyptians to cause Pharaoh to let the people go? Well, it's the death of the firstborn son. But in order for the angel of death to pass over the homes of the Israelites without killing their firstborn sons, they must slaughter their lambs and then take the blood of the lambs and sprinkle it on their doorposts. And then that evening... They are to eat the lambs that they've slaughtered. That night, as the angel of the Lord passes through the nation of Egypt, everywhere where the blood of the lamb was, the angel passes over. 
and all of the firstborn sons of Israel are protected. All of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians are killed. This was the beginning of the memorial of Passover, where through the blood of the Lamb, God passed over the sin of his people. He provided the firstborn son, and he delivered Israel. Finally, in the book of Isaiah, we get an image of the suffering servant. Where Isaiah describes one that God would send who would face great suffering. This suffering servant would serve his people by giving his life to die like a lamb taken to the slaughter. This is what Isaiah 53, 7 says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the temple, part of the daily sacrifice that was given as burnt offerings were lambs who were the substitute for the people's sin. Now John the Baptist, he brings together all of these images together to show that Jesus is the fulfillment as the Lamb of God who will now take upon himself the sin of the world. He especially paints this picture of Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant who will die like a lamb who is taken to his death. Now God provides a lamb. He is the one who has sent Jesus to face the cross on humanity's behalf. So we see John the Baptist right at the beginning of the book telling us how the end is going to happen. What do we call this in a movie? Spoiler alert. John the Baptist is saying, do you know how this is going to end with the Christ? Do you know how this is going to finish? This Christ who God is sending, he is going to die. He's going to be crucified as a substitute for another. And listen, this would have been very difficult for the people that were present listening to John the Baptist to accept. Because in their minds, the Savior that would come to save them was coming to deliver them from political oppression. The hope of Israel was that the Savior would come and that he would defeat and overthrow the Roman Empire. That he would come to make Israel again a free nation. That now the King would come, the Christ, and that he would triumph over their enemies. And now John the Baptist is insisting that the Christ that they're waiting for, he is going to come instead to save the world from sin. Instead of coming to bring them political freedom. Look, even Jesus' disciples, they struggled to believe that Jesus would have to suffer and die. You see, Jesus predicted his suffering three different times with his disciples. And those three times, guess what? They didn't believe him. 
They couldn't accept in their mind that the one who would come to help them would help them by giving up his life. They failed to understand and to see what Jesus' mission actually was. Listen, it was to be a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of sinful humanity. Because only he could face the punishment of God's wrath in order to make atonement for the sin of the world. John the Baptist says that Jesus will what? As the Lamb of God, what will he accomplish? Well, he will take away the sin of the world. This idea of taking away means that he will come and will carry sin on his shoulders in the same way that someone carries a backpack. On his back will be the burden, the weight of sin. And that he will bring the weight of sin before God and offer himself as payment for the consequence of sin. You guys know what this means? Let me give you an example. Logan, come here. Bro, there's only one Logan in the room. Grab your backpack. Jake, come here, bud. Put your backpack on. Both shoulders. Come on. Why don't you guys come over here? We're here. This is Logan's backpack, right? He wears this every day to school. Well, he wears another one, but this is his. This is his other traveling one. I love your honesty, buddy. This is Logan's backpack. But we have Jake here, and Jake is Logan's substitute. So Logan's going to take off his backpack, and now instead of carrying the weight of it. He's going to give it to Jake to carry. It's not that heavy, bro. Don't worry. Who's carrying the backpack? Whose backpack is it? This is what Christ Jesus has done for us in terms of our sin. You see, the one who came to take away sin is the one who came, took it off of ourselves. The wrath that we were supposed to face from God, Jesus took it off of us and he put it on his own shoulders to carry. And he presents himself now before God and saying, I choose to carry Logan's sin. And I will use my life as a perfect lamb without blemish, without sin, and my life will be payment. For his sin. Logan feels lighter now. And yet he knows that someone else has chosen to stand in his place and to carry what belongs to him. How many of you guys know this feeling? Huh? When you're like traveling or on vacation and you take a backpack full of stuff. And the backpack throughout the day begins to feel what? And your back gets all sweaty. That's why my wife loves to travel with me. She won't travel without me. Because I'm the one who always carries everything. And I do it lovingly. Okay, high five. You have another one too. Yeah, and this is me carrying my own stuff. 
That's you curing your own sin. There you go. Good job. Good job. You guys can go do that over there. Let's give these wonderful men a round of applause. Does the illustration make sense? Because one of the things that I struggle with is how people struggle. You hear what I said? One of the things I struggle with is how people struggle to understand what it is that Jesus Christ did for them. And they hold this very light view. Oh, Jesus died for my sin. As if it's like a transaction at the store. And you just tap your phone. Ba-ding! Right? And you're like, oh, it, payment has been what? Made. And we think that what Christ Jesus did for us was that simple. But the weight of what John is saying here is that Jesus had to pay the penalty of death. Because we were the ones who deserved that death. But he took that penalty of death by taking our sin upon his own shoulders and by taking our place and making payment. You see, before God, none of us are holy. Romans tells us, Paul says, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, which means that you and I, we cannot make payment for our sin. And so another had to come, the Lamb of God. And what did he do? He took on his shoulders our sin, and he himself was payment for that sin. Now notice that the word sin here, it's in the singular. You see that? In verse 29, it's not in the plural. John the Baptist is referring to the totality of the sin of all of the world. He's including and encompassing every single individual sin. What Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done is sufficient to cover over not just one sin, not just a few sins, but all the sin of all the world, of all the people, of all history. Did you hear that? Because Jesus is God in the flesh who has come. And so only he is able, through his death and the payment that he's made, to see our sin paid for. The sin that we've committed in the past, the sin that we commit in the present, and even the sin that we will commit in the future. The blood of Christ is powerful enough. It is sufficient enough to make payment for that sin. That would have been a great moment to say, praise God. I'm going to get a sign, Roger, like. And look, this would have been shocking to John the Baptist's crowd. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the who? The nation of Israel. God's people. No, no. The world, everyone, anyone, Jew, Gentile, near, far, pagan, religious. What Jesus will do will be sufficient enough not only to deal with the rebellion of every human being in the world, but it is available to every and anyone in the world. 
Jesus is reaffirming again verses 12 and 13 of the context that we already covered. This salvation that is now being offered by the Lamb of God is being offered to those who have received and who believe in Jesus Christ. Don't, don't, don't be mistaken here. I don't want you to leave on the last sermon of 2022 thinking that Jesus died for the sin of the world so everybody is safe. That's not what John the Baptist is saying here. What John the Baptist is saying here is that Jesus' death on the cross as the Lamb of God is powerful enough to save everyone, but it is only for those who receive and who believe in what he has done. You better be very clear about that. Or else you'll think and you won't care about how you live your life. The end of this year, are you able to see Jesus? You. Are you able to see him with your own eyes as you read through the Bible? Is this how you see him? As the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. As you spend time in God's word, can you see Jesus and who he is? He is your substitute before God. He carried your backpack. And let me tell you, your backpack was heavy. So, so, so heavy. You couldn't carry it any longer. And he said, you know what? Put it on my shoulders. I'll take it for you. And then in verse 30, John reminds us that the one who takes away the sin of the world is the one who, that he's been proclaiming since the beginning of his earthly ministry, John the Baptist. And that his, mis his message has been consistent. That this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it is the one who comes after John. You guys see that in verse 30? In after him, which means that John the Baptist begins his ministry. He begins to proclaim that the Christ must come. And that there would be one who would come after him. And now Jesus shows up on the scene. And now Jesus has come in terms of chronology of time after John. Because what was John's role? It was to be the forerunner for Jesus to prepare people to encounter the Christ. And now he's saying, this one who has come after me, he ranks before me. And not only does he rank before me, but he is before me. Again, John is showing us that the Christ he is the one who ranks in authority, in power, over John the Baptist. Because he knows that the one Christ who will come, he is pre-existent. He's pointing us back to verses 1 and 4. He's reminding us that Jesus, the Word, was with God and was God. And that the Word became flesh and that and that came to dwell among us. That the one that John is proclaiming isn't just another one. It is God himself who has chosen to enter his creation to save his creation. You see, John continues to have great self-awareness of who he is and of who God is. I'm telling you, if we had more reverence and we had more respect, it would be reflected more in our choices. Let me tell you. 
Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears God. And you can clearly see that John fears God. He fears the Lord and he understands that it is the Lord that has come because the Lord is the preexistent one who has entered into his own creation. Second, God reveals Christ to John. In verses 30 to 31. And you see, it's interesting. Look at what John the Baptist says right here. He says, I don't know. I myself didn't know him. You guys see that? He mentions this twice. John the Baptist did not know who the Christ was. Do you guys understand that? He knew what his message was. It was to prepare people to encounter the Christ. But he did not know the identity of who the Christ was. Are you with me? That's the point of this text. He's going to tell us that God himself reveals to him who the Christ is because God is the one who says to him that the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, that's him. Now, does John know who Jesus is? Yes. <laughs> Do you know why? Because John and Jesus are cousins. They're relatives. Are, are you guys with me? They, they would have grown up together. Yes, Jesus lived in the northern part of Israel, in Nazareth. And John the Baptist and his parents lived in the south part of Israel, in Jerusalem. But they were family members. We know that these two men know of each other. John's mother, Elizabeth. And Jesus' mother, Mary, were relatives. Look at what Luke 1, 36 says. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, whom was called barren. Elizabeth and Mary were actually pregnant at the same time. Elizabeth is carrying her son, John the Baptist. And Mary is carrying her own son, Jesus. And there's six-month gap. These two women were relatives, which means that Jesus and John were family. They likely saw each other on a yearly basis because Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They came for the Jewish festivals. And it's very likely that when Jesus and his family came to town, where do you think they stayed? Roger's house. Right? If I lived in Montreal and I was coming here, where do you think I would stay? Roger's house. Right? Or my brother's house. I wouldn't go to a hotel, that's for sure. Save that money. Guys, we're entering a recession. I'd probably say a few days there and a few days there. <laughs> so they knew each other. But yet John the Baptist didn't know that his cousin Jesus was the Christ. You guys get the difference? He didn't know. God showed him. 
What's the proof that Jesus is the Christ? We see in verses 32 and 33. John bears witness. He sees the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descend upon Jesus in a visual form of a dove. John the Baptist is witnessing the same event that the synoptic gospel writers detail about Jesus' water baptism. John is the only one that doesn't describe Jesus' water baptism, but he describes the event and the aftermath of what it is that John the Baptist sees. Jesus comes out to John the Baptist in the wilderness to be baptized. We see that in Mark chapter 9, verse 9 to Mark 1, 9 to 11. Look quickly with what it says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens begin being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In verse 33, John the Baptist says that God, the one who sent him to baptize with water, spoke to him and said to him that the one on whom the Spirit would descend and remain, he would be the one who would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is given divine revelation by God himself about who the Christ will be. And as he baptizes Jesus in the water, and as Jesus comes out of the water, John the Baptist sees the heavens open and a dove descending on him that represents the Holy Spirit. And God said that would happen. And when it happened, God finally reveals to John who the Christ is. Can you imagine that moment? My cousin? My, my cousin? My cousin has been God in the flesh this whole time? Yes. Now John the Baptist can point to someone specifically and say he is the fulfillment of God's promise. This is by far the climax of John's ministry. He can now say that he saw the Christ and knows who he is. He can say, look, look over there, him, that man, he is the Christ. He's no longer just sharing a message. He doesn't just have something to say. Now he has someone to point to. Follow him. He is the one that you need because he is the Lamb of God. He is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's him. And if you notice, it's clear that God says that the Holy Spirit won't just come upon Jesus, but the Holy Spirit will what? Remain. He will stay on upon Jesus always. Jesus himself said this. I don't want to get, we can see the verses in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. Jesus walks into the temple for the, walks into the synagogue for the first time. And he is presented a scroll to read from. He is presented a scroll. He doesn't go looking and grabs one. He is presented with a scroll. And the scroll is from the book of Isaiah that says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the, Lord, of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. The Spirit of God is upon me. And we see that throughout all of Jesus' ministry, 
that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in him and that he has the power of God as a man because Jesus is man on earth and he is enabled with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the good news and to demonstrate power by healing and setting the demon possessed free. So not only does Jesus, and John makes this clear, not only does Jesus have the Holy Spirit to fulfill his ministry, he, the Christ, is the one who will baptize others with the Holy Spirit. That the spirit that he receives and that is abiding in him, he will be able to give to others because only he is able to. What is John the Baptist getting at here? Well, in the same way that John the Baptist had abundant water in the Jordan River to baptize people in water, Jesus has the abundance of the Holy Spirit to be able to baptize people with new life, with eternal life. That now he is the one who has come to give eternal life to people. And this is what it's meant here by baptizing the Holy Spirit. You have to understand this, that those who have been living up until this point, they've been spiritually dead. They have been far from God. Their sin had not been atoned or dealt with. And now, all of a sudden, what has happened? <laughs> the Christ has come. God in the flesh has arrived. The Spirit comes upon him. The Spirit rests upon him. And as the Spirit rests upon him, what happens? Now he is able to give and baptize others with the Holy Spirit. He can grant others new life. The new life we now live, we live in Christ Jesus. Now we who were spiritually dead are spiritually alive in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with who? The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That now the one who came and whose spirit descended upon him is the one who is able to give us the spirit of God. And now we are no longer just living in this life, but that we have eternal life to look forward to. And now we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit that we have is the guarantee. It's the inheritance, the down payment that we will be with God forever and all of eternity. Amen? Whether it's 2023, 24, 34, 54, 64, at the end of all things, we will be with God forever. Because we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us who's been given to us by who? No other than the Christ, Jesus himself. Finally. So John just continues to do what he's, a bit, what he's been doing until now. Not only with the message, but now knowing the person. He continues to testify in verse 34. It's interesting if you look throughout this whole first chapter of John. I encourage you to do so before midnight hits today you'll see that it is filled with different titles for Jesus Christ. Right from the beginning in verse 1, Jesus is called the Word. He is called the Light, the Son of the Father, the Lamb of God. And if you were to look again and again, you'll see even after verse 34, that Jesus is given more titles. Because every title is given to the one who is God in the flesh coming to earth. And so in John 34, the last verse here, what does he say? And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I know and no one can tell me different. Why? Because I have seen. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? 
Anyone can question what you've experienced, but no one can take away the experience that you've had yourself, regardless of what they say. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, no, that's not true. I was there. What do you mean? I saw with my eyes. What do you mean? No, no, no. It was a dream. You're dreaming. I was there. It's undeniable. And this is what John is saying. The force with which he has to share who the Christ is, is in saying that I have seen and I will continue to bear witness of who he is and what he has come to do. He saw in verse 29. He saw in verse 32. And now he is seeing again in verse 34 that this Son of God is Jesus Christ. And we know that this title, Son of God, it means that Jesus and the Father are intimate in relationship with one another. That there is this unity in them being the Godhead, the Trinity, as one. That God the Father is the one who has sent the Son. Does that make sense? That they're working, collaborating together in the Godhead. That each one has its own function and purpose but are dependent on each other. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He has come. Because God has, the Father has sent Him. All He does, He has done because He is filled with the Holy Spirit. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus is the one that God chose to send. And the Son came. And the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. The Son of God has willingly come. Listen, as we end off here. Jesus, the Son of God, has willingly come to be the Lamb that we need to take away our sin. To come and to save us. And God had planned it this way. And we see God's divine providence. We see God accomplishing His own purpose in revealing His plan to John the Baptist. That God provides for you and me what we need. Did you hear me? God provides what you and I need. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin. And He doesn't just take away our sin, but because He's filled with the Holy Spirit, He is able to give us eternal life. You see, God doesn't just fix what we need down here, but God fixes what we need forever and eternity. How certain are you beyond the shadow of a doubt that as we reach the end of 2022, that we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. That He is our Savior, the Son of God. Because if we are certain, we should be ready to give just a, as forceful a testimony as John did. Did you hear me? We should be ready to go to our friends and our family members and our co-workers and our neighbors knowing that we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that we have something to say. And that it has become undeniable to us. Now listen to me closely as I end. When I say forceful, I don't mean that we are to be obnoxious, condescending, or rude to the people around us. What I mean is 
that we have the internal fortitude because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us in knowing that regardless of what the people around us say, what our family members and friends might say, or what we might hear on social media, it will not bend or it will not shake our belief in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. Because increasingly in the world around you, if you listen to what everyone is saying, Jesus is not God. But we need the internal fortitude to be filled with the Holy Spirit to know that regardless of what other people say, that we know that God has spoken to us through His Word and more importantly through His Son whom He has sent. I pray that this would be your joy as you reach the end of this year. And that it would be this single joy that would be your firm foundation in 2023. Amen? Let us pray.